Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 85 of Caro Pop. This is a very special Caro Pop episode as we hang out in the green room with Robbie Fultz before his recent concert at the club Space in Evanston. Let me add here that Space is also where I'll be talking with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon on stage on July 31st. Tickets are on sale now. Go to evanstonspace.com. But back to Robbie Fultz. He's an incredibly talented singer-songwriter and guitar picker who has thrived in the alt-country folk worlds, and he was our guest for episode 26 of Carol Pop. He has a new acclaimed album out now, Bluegrass Vacation, and like the title implies, it's a bluegrass album, with folks playing and singing his songs alongside some top bluegrass players. The title also implies that this is a vacation, a temporary destination before he returns to where he lives musically. Is that true? Will he ever pick up an electric guitar or play in front of a drum kit again? We ask him. His May 13th show was the second time in five days that he played at Space. He used to perform in the Chicago area all the time, but he and his wife moved to Los Angeles a few years ago, and then the pandemic hit. So his shows around Chicago have become less frequent and more of a big deal. We asked whether we could hang out with Robbie in Space's spacious green room before the show, and he graciously agreed. So there we were, intruding on his pre-show rituals. Does he have pre-show rituals? I know he used to change his strings before every show. Does he still? What kind of strings does he use, anyway? Is the set list the same from night to night? What is his philosophy in writing out a set list? Does he eat before a show? Drink? Will he be eating that wood-fired white anchovy pizza from Union, the restaurant at the front of the building? We talk about his playing, whether at age 60 he places more emphasis on his picking skills than he used to, and whether he gets more joy out of playing with other super talented musicians. Then there's his songwriting and the topics that open up as you get older, such as aging parents, worries about your kids, and your own mortality. Does he write with his musical approach and the musicians in mind? We dig into his new album, the references to living in LA in the opener, One Glass of Whiskey, these L.A. bars are friendly, small-town bars are rough. I don't need no more unkindness, the memories of one glass of whiskey. Throw ease my mind, and another one to take it too far away to find. Surprising musical turns and powerful kicker of the autobiographical Angels Carry Me. Search me why I still carry this dog-eared book of dead names. Ever gave me was blows to the heart, and I love you just the same. And the multitude of songs about music. Is that a bluegrass thing, writing songs about bluegrass? This conversation was recorded on the fly without the benefit of our fancy studio equipment. And there's all sorts of ambient noise, such as people talking in the background. We hope you'll enjoy the feeling of being there for this Carol Pop conversation in the green room with Robbie Folks. So do you, do you still change your strings before every show? Or no, no. I was out with uh, David Greer, and he inspired me to change less. Just watching him, he hardly ever changes. I change him every two or three shows now. Why did you used to change him every show? Well, because like when I started out, like in the 80s, I broke strings a lot. And so it became like a fear that... Um, I mean, I just thought if they're fresh all the time, then that's as good as I can do, do not break strings. And I would still break occasional strings. but And then I realized that my bridge was kind of to blame. Oh. And um, so I adjusted my bridge. And um, and I should have just learned my lesson then. But, I, you know, another thing is I like the um, feel of the fresh strings. I like the brightness and the sparkle of new strings. And so they start to go um, dull 
pretty quickly, you know, after an hour or two. What kind of strings do you use? Uh, I got John Pierce, uh, P-E-A-R-S-E. I've been using yeah, them since nice. the 80s. So there are those elixir strings, yeah. which uh, last longer. They cost twice as much. They, they cost last twice longer. As much, but they last longer. I don't like them. I change, change them like once a year. I don't like the sound of them or <laughs> the feel of they're them. Not, they're not bright enough. Uh, they feel funny to me. I mean, I tried them. I'm just used to this, I guess. Do you use different strings for bluegrass than you did when you were an alt-country rocker? No. I use the same strings all the time. They're 80-20s. They're medium gauge. And uh, it's just what I'm used to by now. How long have you had the guitar? This guitar I haven't had long. Maybe five years or six. And uh, my dad's Martin I've had forever. And the guitar that I usually play or travel with is a Collins D2H. And uh, I've also not had that long. I've had that since 2012. Where's the Collins tonight? It's back at home. I just, uh, I go through periods with the Collins and the Martin where I kind of like, I don't know, I don't like to play them for just like a day and then play the other one the next day. I like to like have relationships with them for months. How do they feel and sound different from each other? Well, the Collings I was using on my last record and I wasn't satisfied totally with the way. It's easy to play. And it sounds good live, and it is good, but the recorded image on this last record, maybe it was the mics that the guy was using partly, maybe it was other stuff, but it sounded a little mushy to me, and then I brought the Martin to the next session for the record and was much more pleased with it. So it's a more focused pointed sound. It's a smaller body. I'm no expert on guitars, and uh, if I say much more, I'm going to sound really stupid about it. When you say in the last you mean this record? Uh, the Bluegrass Vacation Blue record, vacation. right. So you used both of them on that? I did, yeah. Got it. So what's your, what else is your pre-show, pre-show ritual aside from like taking oh annoying questions from you as you're just sort of waiting for uh, Gerald to go on? Uh, did you yeah. eat? Uh, no. Did you order food? I ordered food. I gave my guest list. I set up my merchandise. Uh, what else? I learned a song of Gerald's because apparently I'm doing a song with them. And I, I that was I was not aware of that, so I learned that. And Did you just come in and say, "Hey, man, you're, you're playing a song with me"? Yeah. I, was, I was your drummer for a long time. You owe me. He said, "I sent you everything weeks ago," and I said, "Really? I I don't remember that. I'm sorry." <laughs> and then I sat down and banged it into my head. But generally, that nothing. I mean, what what do I do? What, what's to do? Practice? Answer the door? I'll answer the door. Be right it's, back. This is like exciting part of it. It's like the Mr. Rogers part. Of it. It's Mr. McFeely. <laughs> hey, we're doing a podcast. Come on back. Be on the podcast. He's running the other way for some reason. I hear a lot of enthusiasm over there. Yeah. Hey. Hi. That's Shad Cobb. Howdy. One of America's most beloved fiddlers. <laughs> How, how much you got? How many people do you have on the road with you? Five, including myself. Uh, it's a quartet of players and a sound man. Would you just like eat like a normal meal? Like you're fine? Like because there's some people who wouldn't eat before a show. So you'll eat before a show. Yeah, I do not like to eat before a show, and I'm in fact not hungry now. But I'm going to eat because it's going to be 
you know, it's going to be 11.30 at night and it's not going to be a good time to eat and blah, blah, blah. No, if I had my druthers, I would eat like a few hours before playing and not go up all swollen. And But haven't you been doing this for like ever and shows start around the same time? Yes. yes. So, you, so I would think you'd have a routine like, oh, I'm going to eat dinner at 5 before the sound check and then so I don't feel bloated when I go on stage. Right. So uh, one routine is that I say to the, if there's a restaurant, if there's a kitchen in the place, I say, can I get the food to go after? Is the kitchen open till 1030? Can I do it after the show? And tonight for various boring reasons, my grandson's coming tonight. So oh, nice. afterward, he's going with me back to the hotel and I don't want to make him just sit around for a half an hour while I stuff my face, you know, so I'm eating now. Do you have a drink before? The show? Do you drink on stage? Yeah. Never. No. Yeah. Is that ever anything you did early on that you realized, yeah, I shouldn't do that? Yes. Yes. You could almost be doing this podcast alone. Yes. <laughs> I I uh, did some wrong things early on, and um, yeah, either aged out of them or just used my head and thought it's better not to do this this way. So uh, they're the performers who have like a beer on stage. Performers who have water on stage, and, and then someone like Paul McCartney, who has no liquid on stage at all, and then doesn't go to the bathroom for two and a half hours straight. No kidding. Well, you are really uh, observant. I'm going to do a whole podcast on like peeing for headliners in you know, concerts. <laughs> you know what they drink, and because yeah, I think if you had you know coffee, that would just kind of like get the kidneys going too much. Yeah, I think. Uh Sometimes I drink. I was looking at that pot of coffee and thinking about it. But you know what they say about the half-life of caffeine or whatever. If you drink a cup at, like, it's six now, I'll, I'll still be feeling the effect at, like, two in the morning, maybe. Yeah, I don't. I can't do caffeine after lunch. How much is your songwriting influenced by who you're playing with? Like, do you write songs thinking, I'm going to be playing with these guys and I need to, like, have some good stuff for them? Oh, like on the record? Yeah. Well, when you're writing songs, I mean, they end up on the record. But. Yeah, yeah. That brings to mind one thing that connects to a well-known name. So there's this mandolinist, Sierra Hall, that's well-known among bluegrassers and among wider people, too. And um, and uh, she was playing on a song. She was slated to play on a song. And so I went out to where I write the music, and I started thinking about... And I listened to her records all the way out to this place, because I had a couple-hour drive. And I started thinking, and her songs, like on her records, they do a lot of like funky little moves, and they um, and they have uh, you know odd time signatures sometimes, and they have like you know little little breaks where and uh, you know I thought, well I'm not giving her anything like that you know because that's not my thing, um, and then I thought I'm also not going to give her like uh, like a hardcore bluegrass. Like a thing, like a standard bluegrass thing, but I also don't want to give her like like a slow ballad because then I won't get the the, the, the benefit of her like her, her right. technique. So what I came up with is like a like a kind of a Paul Simon fast flowing thing. And I thought if I give her that kind of a tempo, she can go and she can go anywhere slower than that too. But that pace of the eighth notes is kind of like on the fast side, not extremely fast. So that was my starting point with that. And um, I mean, it sounds like such a nerdy way. Was that like Mama's Eyes or which one? No, was it's called Angels Carry Me. Angels and, Carry Me. Okay. And it's such a 
uh, to a listener, I think that might sound like a weird way to begin a song, like with the groove, but it is a way that I often start it. Do you start it with the music before you start with the lyrics and what the song's about? Uh, different ways, I would say, but um, yeah, different ways. Sometimes a phrase. Because well, that song's pretty autobiographical. So. Right, but it started with a groove, so I mean, it can really start anywhere, and you can... Um, you can get into autobiography, or you can, you can get into uh, like on another song. I had the, I had this little groove going, and then I couldn't think of what to do with it. And I was reading a, a book of poetry, and uh, and found a line that kind of fit into that, and, and went from there. So, cool. Start anywhere. Yeah. No. When you say the Paul Simon thing, I was thinking of Duncan. So like it's uh-huh. like where it's like a it's like he's actually playing fast but it's not a fast song. That one, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you feel like you write? I mean, just in general, like your last three albums have been more kind of introspective. Like, are you intentionally writing more autobiographically? Would you say? Yeah, I got more to write about, right? Than I did when I was twenty or something. You know, I mean, twenty and thirty, I was. Just using a lot of imagination, a lot of emotion, emotion, like a lot of anger and sadness and sort of teenagery emotions, and uh, that seemed valid. You know, a lot of people do that, I think. But at this point, at sixty, like I make a joke about it on stage sometimes. Like I don't want to write sexy love songs because, I mean, I, I could I could legitimately feel that, but I think it's gross to watch a guy <laughs> at sixty sing about that stuff, and. Uh, uh, but there is so much stuff like to look back on, like strange memories, and then the forward stuff is like uh, fear of death, uh, and the present day stuff is like anxiety about what your kids are up. There's so much material going on in midlife, you know. And you find also where you are now that you're just more reflective, and that you're kind of putting stuff in perspective about like this is what I got from where I grew up, and this is what I got from my relationship with my dad, and that sort of thing. Exactly. You know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not aware that I'm thinking of that stuff when I'm just like going through the day or even when I sit down to reflect. That's not the stuff that I go to. But for songwriting, I think that's, you know, useful to go to those areas. Like, what am I anxious about? Like, what's buried? What's what's important to me that I may have forgotten about from a long time ago? And... Uh, and, and often when you dredge up that kind of stuff, you're going into, you, you come up with stuff that everybody's experiencing, you know, the names and the places change out, you know, in terms of the details, but we're all kind of having a similar experience going through life, I think. Well, like your last line of Angels Carry Me is, only a fool thinks he could leave just by driving away. And is like, is that a line that while you were writing the song, you just kind of landed on it? Or did you sort of have that line and then sort of build the song around it? It was a lucky land. I kind of wrote the song in order, and I got to the end, and I thought, this is not ending. This is just in the middle of nowhere. And then that last section wraps everything up. And and that's kind of the order in which it happened, as I recall. It's like, uh, uh, I'll, I'll just tie it up, and <laughs> that'll bring it to a close. And what can, what's the moral here? And then I'm like on the last line. I think, oh, that's the moral. You can't just drive away. It just stays with you. Well, yeah, in the previous line, and I don't remember the exact line, it's, a, it's a, basically that your father never escaped and never left. Right. And then and then you had left, obviously, but then you're like, only a fool thinks he could really escape by driving away. So. You're a really good listener, and yeah, <laughs> you're a good audience. And then you have like Mama's Eyes, which which is that's 
is that autobiographical too, or is that something where you just sort of have known enough people who have gone through? It's a, a song where it's a heartbreaking song about you know just like watching the light go out in someone's eyes as they lose their memory and become not them, which certainly I know plenty of people in and not in the family you know who have done that. So. Right, right. So yes and yes. It's uh, my, it wasn't my mother, but it was my mother-in-law. So I changed her to my mom in the song, and but I wrote this song um, because, like, I was seeing that this was happening to a lot of people, right? Like, in my immediate uh, group of friends, my age group, like, this is happening a lot. So, is is doing these songs and is bluegrass like a, I don't know, a better or easier way to express these, you know? I don't want to say sentiments, but just to tell these stories then, I don't know, other forms you've used, or is it just, is the delivery system not that important? As far as bluegrass, I think it's like just opened up so much in the last 25 years, you know, if you were thinking about what you could, themes and um, uh, sort of uh, language color that you could use in song lyrics, and chord complexities, like you would have really been kind of hindered, I think, if you were working on songs in 1965 for a bluegrass record. But now, um, now that uh, Alison Krauss and Nickel Creek and others have opened it up, I think there's like a lot of different directions. You know, you can be reflective, you can be poetic, you can be uh, ambiguous, you can, I mean, really to be like hard driving and to use like totally transparent language or to go back to the older school and use bluesy kind of slangy sly winking language I think that is maybe more unusual in modern bluegrass writing uh, the older style so uh, I think I think you're freer now than you were in the past well and Angels Carry Me has like a lot of different parts to it it's not just kind of like A, B, A, B you know like verse, chorus you know bridge whatever It's it has these like kind of unexpected changes in there like it's, yeah. a, it's an ambitious song musically as well as you know whatever's going on lyrically it goes A A and then there's a little thing and then B and then A and then C and then A and then B and then A again so yeah so it's kind of I think broadly it's like A B C B A apart but they're, but even the even the like the, the parts they're not they're not like where you expect them to go, and not that you always do. But there's there's some songs, you know, or like you know, certainly if you hear a blues song or something like that, and like the chorus will sound like you expect it to sound. Or it, but these, it, I don't know, and I, I can't quote it directly what's going on. But like that, they're sort of like unusual. They're sort of unexpected, like chord changes and like sort of tempo changes and stuff built into those different parts. Yeah, well, it's partly thinking about Sierra that led me into that sort of freedom with the chords, probably, but also it was being stuck because I was I'd written two A figures, as I mentioned, I kind of wrote it in order. I wrote those two A figures, and then I was just stuck for like a week or two, and I thought, well, it's boring. Like I can't repeat the A, that's boring, but I can't really do a chorus because it doesn't sound like a verse-chorus song. And it wasn't until I sat down and listened to that Paul Simon song, uh, "Darling Lorraine," that I thought, well, this is the answer. You just have like another voice come in, and you have what sounds like it could be a key change, but it's a different section of the song, right. and it's a different sort of voice talking in the lyric. Um, so, so I think that's a good idea always to like rip something off when you're stuck. You know what I mean? 
So did you write all these on guitar, or did you write some on guitar, banjo? Because right. you're playing the pan oh, banjo yeah. on, um, what, Old Time, uh, old time right. Music is Here to Stay. I forgot. Yeah, I wrote that on banjo, right. Do you do a lot of writing on banjo? No. Is it different for you, or just, you know, like, how did that work? I guess it's different, right? Because it's, like, tuned different. It's got the five strings, and one's a drone string. And in double C tuning, which sounds like, uh, uh, let's see, what does it sound like? It sounds something like that. It sounds something like... Those are the notes, right? And double C tuning on a banjo. So that doesn't sound already anything like, you know, like that, the C chord on a guitar. And so the cadence that just naturally came out of my hands on that uh, goofing around on the, on the double C tuning of the banjo suggested the melody line of that song. I don't think it would have popped out of a piano or a guitar so easily. The, and did the words come after that, or did you already have those words and know you want to write a song about that? Boy, all these what comes first questions are, are kind of um, challenging to think about. I think that I think I came up with that. What am I gonna write about? What words sound good? Church bells sound good. Maybe that church bells sound mountain, mountain. I mean, it's just so. It's so nothing, you know. It's so like it's like being a chimp and playing with a piece of cheese. I don't know. It's like. It's like <laughs> That was what I thought. I was when I was listening to the song. I thought this sounds kind of like a chimp playing with a cheese. <laughs> is it? Is it also like a bluegrass song to like write songs about songs, like write songs about music? Because I, I count at least three on here: uh, Molly and the Old Man, Long-Haired Bluegrass, and Old Time Music is Here to Stay. Where you basically, you know, singing about what you're playing or the kind of music you're playing. I think that's me more than bluegrass, but. Um... Hey, Shad, there are a lot of bluegrass songs about bluegrass, right? Like Jimmy Martin has a couple. Like Randall Opry's song, for instance. Or um, The Bluegrass President. Is that a song of his? That is. Uh, I mean, I I wasn't sure whether I should count the ones with blues in the name, because blues is something that you have, whether it's musical or not. But it's kind of self-referential. Like, I got the something blues is sort of a music reference, but not as directly as the other one where it's like... Yeah, this old time music's here to stay. I'm not using drums and sequencers, so you know, check back in a hundred years and see if you're listening to this or uh, yeah. right Beyonce. Right. Yeah, I think I like to write about music. I mean, write about what you know, and that's like supposedly my job is music. But I, I think about it and play it, you know, half the day. So. So I guess I'm just like fated to write about it because I'm thinking about it a lot. Does being in L.A. sort of, in a way, encourage you to play more bluegrass because it's nice out and you can sit in the backyard with your acoustic guitar and have people over and, you know, like do that all year instead of like three months of the year? And I don't know. I'm just guessing now. Yeah, that's kind of a nice idea. I think it's partly true. When the pandemic happened, we had not been there long. And then I started like playing in this guy's backyard. Other players would come over, and there'd be like anywhere from four to fifteen of us in a circle, playing not just bluegrass music, but this generally in that neighborhood. And I hadn't done that since I was a teenager, and that's uh, so that's a really specific like California pandemic memory of uh, 
that's, and, and it's only a period of life that's been over now for about six months, I guess. But yeah, and that's related to the weather, being in a guy's backyard, fruit trees, guys relaxing with instruments. It, it did feel real natural in that environment, and, uh, yeah, and, and that doesn't happen here as much, maybe. You know, I've, I've gone to plenty of stuff over summers uh, where there are like these backyard house house concerts and backyard concerts. It's great. You just you just aren't going to do them in February. <laughs> you know, you, you, there's still this period where you just kind of everyone's shut in. And, and part of what makes Chicago great is that when spring comes and then the warm weather finally follows the actual turning of the calendar in spring, people are in such a good mood and want to be outside and want to do stuff outside. So that's good, too. But I was just thinking that we're, you know, sort of seeing the descriptions of what you've talked about where you're kind of near these horse farms and stuff, even though you're in L.A., yeah. that, that, that in a way, even though you're in this huge city, you're also in this kind of environment that encourages you to be outdoors. Well, bluegrass is like, it's a real social music, right? And so you don't have to know the people that you're playing with. So you mentioned house concert, and I was talking about just getting together with people, some of whom I didn't know. And... Um, Hootenanny. It's like a hoot nanny, but it's uh, it's cool with bluegrass because everybody knows more or less the same songs, you know, the same fiddle tunes and the same songs, and people sort of understand their roles. Like you know, it's there's a, there's a verse, so somebody's one instrument might be backing it up, and then there's another verse, so another instrument will back it up, and there's these kind of like formula rules, and um, I think that's cool as opposed to like you know having uh, having a rock act or something like that. Do you feel like as you've gotten older, you've gotten more interested in your playing, you know, that, that like actually improving as a player has been something you maybe thought about or concentrated on more than you did when you were younger? It would seem like it from going to my shows, I think, over the last 30 years. But um, but I also think not really. I think I've always wanted to be a better player, and I still want to be a better player. Um for whatever reason, for a while, I wasn't like soloing a lot in the shows. Like I had a dedicated soloist that would just take most of the solos and on a guitar as it happened. But um, but lately, it's I'm soloing a little bit more. These guys still solo more than I do. I'd rather hear some a great soloist than like be thinking about it. It's a lot of work. But yeah, I, I always want to get better at it. I think that's. I just think that's uh, that's what I want to be. I want to be like a full service gas station, you know, with the singing and the playing and the writing and the personality, like the performance, uh, the performance aspect of it. Uh, I want to be concentrating all and, and the um, the playing is the thing that um, that needs the most work. I think you know what I mean. It's like. If you put down the guitar for a day and then you come back to it the next, then you're a day worse generally than you were. It just like slides really easily uh, so to keep your fingers kind of limber and your and your relationship with the instrument strong. It's a daily thing, which is not really like singing. You know, I could take a week off from singing and still be as good a singer, and I could take a year off from writing as I've done and get back to it, and it's not a big big deal. But and but the and then the writing is like voice, you know what I mean? Like you're working toward having a voice that nobody else has. So if I was as good a songwriter as Paul Simon, exactly the way that he's good, it wouldn't be a great thing because there's already a Paul Simon. So right. I'm trying to be an, a, an individualist. 
that's not quite as true, I think, in the playing. Uh, but that's just my opinion. So anyway, the playing is a, like a harder goal for me to reach. I'm in a way I'm already there with the writing. Like I write like me, but I just always want to be playing a little bit better than I'm really playing. Does the playing push you toward bluegrass specifically because you're picking and that sort of it thing? It does, just because that's what what was what I was doing when I was seven. You know what I mean? It's like it's 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 so in there that and and I work with the the pick and the pick is thick. And the strings are thick, and and all of that just kind of leads to up down up down sawing wood, you know, bluegrass playing. I mean, you you call the album bluegrass vacation, which implies that I'm just on vacation here. This isn't where I live. I mean, is this where you live musically now, or or, or do you see yourself going back to, you know, alt country rock for the next record and getting oh, drum no. kit again and oh, you know no. get, get pulling out your <laughs> electric guitar and all that. No, no, never. I did electric guitar at your wedding. Yes. And you know why, though? Because that's, I broke my acoustic guitar that day. I think I've told you this, but... I don't think you did. I was doing that show at the... Um, where was it? By um, Goose Island or Goose something? Goose Island, yeah. And, uh, and, and it was a really hot day. It was, like, super hot. And the stage was hot. And I got kind of, like, dizzy in the head. And I put down the guitar. And I walked off after the show and put the guitar on, like, an oil drum kind of a trash can thing. Oh, and no. it immediately fell from a height and the back caved in. And that's what I was going to bring to your wedding. Wow. And so I had to go home, get the electric. And I'm not a good electric guitar player, you know. You guys were great, though. I mean, you guys rocked. But but anyway, the, the point being, because um, I've been married a long time now, but that was, you know, that was great. You, you were the best wedding band ever. Mm-hmm. Um, the point being that you're, you're on bluegrass vacation, so where are you going to go live after this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if the record does good, I might do another one. Not exactly the same kind of thing. I don't like to do the same thing twice in a row, but I might, it's a bluegrass kind of a label, and I like doing it, you know? So maybe, maybe another one. Uh, I'll just brag, the record has been on the charts. The bluegrass, the Billboard has a bluegrass album chart, which like, you right. know, 50 people buy bluegrass records, and they end up on this chart probably. But, uh, but I've been on it for four weeks since the record came out. And it debuted at two, and then dropped, 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 and then it rose again this week. So, uh, which really surprised me. Um, and it's, the chart's probably kind of meaningless, but but I, I it still made me feel good to see it, you know. So that's one indication that maybe it's I saw clicking. I saw the vinyl out on the merch table. So you got the vinyl, you got the CD, you got the digital downloads. Is it hard getting the vinyl? Because I keep hearing people say, I don't want to deal with vinyl because it takes like a year to get it pressed or whatever. That's the label's problem, you know. So, But the label got it done because you got the vinyl. Yep. I mean, Bloodshot got it done too here in town. And, right. Uh, yeah, I've dealt with it on my own as an independent uh, when I put up my own thing, working with the pressing plant. Yeah, it's a nightmare, kind of. It's great to have a label for a few reasons still, not for many reasons still, but that's one of them. Do you get into the whole mastering thing? Like, are you like listening to how it's mastered and saying, ah, you know, I think it needs a little more EQ over here? Um, I should be there. I've never been there. I don't think uh, when the record's been my record's been mastered, but I should be. But it it, go, it tends to go back and forth a couple times. This record went back and forth like four times. There's a guitar player, like, he's on my record, Chris Eldridge, and he said once, you know, when you 
when you hit a wall with your playing, which sometimes happens, just do one note. <laughs> so like pick a note, it's B flat, and make it sound as good as you can make it. Just listen to the sound of the note. Give a little vibrato, maybe. That and vibrato. Focus on maybe the B flatness of the note. And so that I really like that instruction. It's like the opposite of a you know practice this practice this stuff and blah blah blah. You know, you can just, really just just break it down. It's just isolated. You can so easily and quickly get unmusical with this idea of speed, speed, speed. You know, it's like uh, um, you know, it's like make love faster. You know, why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why not slow down and find some pleasure in the slowness of it? Yeah. See, and you said you weren't writing sexy anymore. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> we saw um, we saw Richard Thompson here last yeah. Friday, and he's playing acoustic, and he's just such a phenomenal player. Yeah. It's not bluegrass, but it's still picking. But it's like a different. I mean, it's different from what you're doing, and I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but where he's kind of like driving like the the rhythm section with his like thumb up here, and then like doing all this picking at the same time down here, and coming up with all these melodic lines and all this other stuff. Yeah, like how is how is that different from what you're doing in bluegrass or just what you're doing in general man I could use these guys to help me we just saw Richard I was on a thing where he was on the same bill and we didn't watch him play I mean what's the connection between Richard Thompson in terms of the guitar it's like a Celtic thing that's not quite as prominent in what we do right there's a little overlap there but how would you describe it I would say there's definitely some Celtic influence he also which you don't get in bluegrass is he does uh, alternate tunings. Yeah, right. He'll mess around with uh, weird open tunings. So that he can get the benefit of the like the low drone or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And with the low drone, he can have the rhythm going along while he does like a double bend on the two high strings, you know? Yeah. He did a lot of double bends when we saw him. So, um, and he does a lot of finger style stuff, too. A lot of finger style, which is different from bluegrass. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the finger style stuff, I think, just generically kind of relates strongly to the piano, you know, um, almost always, including in his playing. And then the bend stuff that you associate with Richard, like a lot of bending, right? And I think that I associate the bending with like rock guitar playing, but what do you think, Scott? Like electric guitar playing? Yeah. Absolutely. Any? Yeah, okay. It seems very different on electric and acoustic at the same time. Like, like sort of, you'll see him with the band, and it's like this one kind of playing because he's on electric, and then with acoustic, he's just like, Doo -doo -doo. I'm not going to try to sing what he's doing because it'll just sound embarrassing. I, I hear them as connected. I mean, I, I hear that, that when he's solo, alone on, on acoustic, he's got to cover all the ground, right? right. So the thumb's moving, and he's uh, you know laying down a carpet on top of which this other melodic stuff is happening. And that when he's playing electric, he's got all that carpet around him. Right. That's the. That might be the main difference. He doesn't have to be his own rhythm section when right. he's playing with a band. Right. But it's still the same I hear type the same of music. Voice and the same bends and the same. Yeah, the same fractured, fun pull off and uh, hammer on melody ideas and is playing on both instruments yeah so when you and when you guys are playing fast and 
finding all the stuff like what are you doing that's different it's like it's it's it, have you not bending as much it's just it's just a different yeah it's just a different genre of picking well for guitar you mean like the yeah. touchstones for this kind of guitar um, are so few right like it's pretty easy to, to identify at this point in the history of the instrument because Doc Watson is kind of the first guy for like um, prodigy bluegrass single string guitar playing and then there really there's probably like fewer than 20 others it's a small group of people and the big shots to me are like uh, Norman Blake, Dan Crary, um, Pat Flynn, uh, David Greer, Brian Sutton, I'm forgetting a couple obvious ones probably but um, oh, well Tony Rice is who I'm forgetting um, but the big names Doc, Tony Rice, and Norman Blake, I think, are my three big names of all the guys. And uh, and the oldest guys, too. Like Doc, 60s, Tony, 70s, Norman also 70s. So this style, from my point of view, was in place kind of by 1980. And this is like an old man's point of view, and it's probably not very accurate. It's probably subjective. But to me, the um, modifications that have been made on that foundation since 1980 have been just that, modifications. And the big heroic work was done like 1960 through 1980. That almost has to be wrong, right? That everything happened when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, one of those points of view. When, when you first picked up a guitar, how old were you and were you emulating that, like those guys? Yeah. I mean, I was emulating... Yeah, but like you were picking from the start. You weren't just like, because like for me, with me, I mean, I think of, I think that Elvis Costello once dubbed himself like Little Hands of Concrete. Like that would have been me picking up a guitar for the first time. I just went. Vroom, vroom. Me too. But I, I can't. Mean. But I, I never could pick to save my life. But 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 you were listening to that music from the start, so that was what guitar was for you. Yeah, not a hundred percent, but my idea of like a of like a guitar hero was Doc Watson when I was a kid. It wasn't George Harrison, but I loved George Harrison's playing. So I, would, I was a big Beatle fan like yourself. And, um, and so I tried to figure out those. Those songs are more interesting like for chord language, right? Like the chords were amazing in Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the George Harrison solos were like equally amazing and the little, you know, riffs and the, the motifs. Right. Um, but for Prodigy playing, my idea of a guitar god was the bluegrass guys, not so much the rock guys. Well, and, and you know, the guitar heroes of the 60s are like, George is sort of underrated in a way because he plays these perfect parts on these incredibly well-composed songs. But it was like Clapton is God or something. And I just, and then Jimi Hendrix. And I kind of never got the Clapton thing, but that's, but I also, but I've never been that much into the whole blues guitar thing. And that seems like a different genre than, you know, like even what Richard Thompson was doing. Like, yeah, I don't think of him as a blues guitarist, even though he, I, I asked him about it and he's like, oh yeah, I like blues guitar, but I think he likes sort of Peter Green blues guitar as opposed to maybe Clapton or something. I don't know. There are all these different ways to be a guitarist. That's right, yeah. And there's a lot of value in trying to overlook these verbal categories, you know, and just hear it as a, as a language and a feel. 
So you're playing all these shows. Do you do do you do the same set every night? Do you write a completely different set every night? Like, what do you do? When do you come up with the set list? How set is it? So I do shows in a lot of different formats with a lot of different people, and um, a lot of the time I do duo shows these days. And when I do that, I've got a couple different partners that I use, and we know each other well enough, and they know my stuff well enough that I don't have to have a set list. And so I usually don't when I do that. And when I'm solo, I never have a set list, probably. But when you're here on Tuesday, same band as tonight, So right? now I have these a tour. four guys, right. and we're just out for 10 days, and we have a set list. And we do close to the same thing every night. Next week, I have another quartet of people, all different people. Really? We have a different set list that will do the same. And then the next time I'm out, what is the next time? Well, actually, look back backward in time. It's more impressive. So, uh, before this tour, I had another tour with a different quartet. Before that tour, I had a different tour with a different quartet, except for this mandolinist. So, it's really fun. It's like every outing, I get to see different people. And the brief answer to your question is that like, like it's a it's an operation like this with a ton of people in it, and it's really helpful for it to be the same. All so you'll the time. come up with one set for each right. group band, basically. That's what and I'm doing cause, now. Because that's where you want to make sure they learn the songs and are comfortable with the songs, and you're not throwing them like curveballs in the middle of it. Exactly, pretty much that. Yeah, with four people playing at once, there has to be organization and predictability. With two people playing at once, there can be Right. Improv and not knowing what's going to happen next, you know. So this will be, so this is your set for this tour, but then you're going to have another tour in a week that's going to be a different set. Right. I mean, we'll still do the same songs from the new record largely, but I mean, I mix it up just so I don't get bored, you know. Right. Is it important to you, like, do you, do you have a cer certain songs that are like, okay, this is like the first song, Where, whatever set I'm doing, or do you like, yeah, it doesn't matter what song you open with? I try to rethink that every every time. I like writing set lists. It's really fun. I like sitting there at the computer and thinking about, like, what have I never done for an opening, and what might kind of work, or what might be odd, and then, oh, I've, I've done this song every freaking show for... 10 years, let's get rid of that one for a year. And so it's fun to think about and game out in advance. Is there something like, are you sort of playing out the concert in your mind? Is there, Are you sort of trying to get a certain kind of flow to the songs or just kind of make sure you, you know, you mix the, the new ones with the familiar ones with the hit, so-called hits, you know? I, I'm trying to do the, the obvious stuff that people would think about, like mix up the keys and mix up the tempos, right? Um, so you're not doing a bunch of ballads in a row. But I'm trying to go beyond that obvious idea, too. If, are you seeing the show tonight? Yes. Okay. So let me know what you think. But I, I'm trying something, and I think I like it. Like in this show, songs three through six, like there's a bunch of songs in a row right near the top of the set that aren't fast. And... Um, I mean, so it's slightly bold, I think, to do that. But I like the idea that um, it's not just going to go song by song. Okay, that move's over. Now this move. Now that move. Now this move. But there's like a, maybe a 12 or 13 minute period where there's a sort of a consistent mid-level move going on. I think that could be cool. Yeah. So it's not, and are you mixing in like new and old songs during that mid-mood? Uh -huh. And then do you also like sort of make a point of like, 
do, doing covers at the end? Or? No. Uh, no Dancing Queen? We did Friday last night, the Rebecca Black song. Oh. But that was... Uh, that just kind of happens. <laughs> I don't think we'll do it tonight. Well, you know, yeah, and plus it was Friday. You'd have to do like it the was ba- Friday. You'd have to do like the Bay City Rollers tonight or something. So. Good point. Thank you so much, fun. Bobby. It was thank fun. you. Thank you. I love your podcast. Well, thank you. I love you. So. I'm flattered it to be on you. it. That's all for episode 85 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Robbie Foltz for letting us hang out with him backstage for this fly on the wall experience. His new album, Bluegrass Vacation, is available in multiple formats, including limited edition blue vinyl on Bandcamp. That's robbiefolks.bandcamp.com. You also can find it and a lot more about Robbie on robbiefolks.com. Robbie is on Instagram and Twitter at Robbie Folks, R-O-B-B-I-E-F-U-L-K-S. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who also diligently held the digital recorder in front of Robbie's and my faces for this episode. He kills Saturday night. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter at Caro Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Caro Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Tickets are on sale now for my onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois on July 31st. Go to evanstonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.